Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, good morning. How are you? You sound great. Listen, it is 4th of July. How do I know that? My neighborhood was ablaze last night. (laughs) While me and two of my children are trying to watch a movie, our neighborhood was under assault. (laughs) At one point in time, Cameron looked over at me and said, Dad, it's really getting annoying. I said, I know, honey. We're watching The Parent Trap from 1998. (laughs) All right. That has nothing to do with today's message. Uh, No. Happy 4th. I'm glad you chose to be here on the 4th of July. I know you could have been at barbecues, away at families' places, and you probably have plans to go there later on today. But for this morning, you chose to be here. And I believe there's a divine appointment every Sunday morning, not just on Sunday mornings, please don't mishear me, but I believe there's a divine appointment every Sunday morning when churches gather together in a facility like this. I believe there's a divine appointment because I know what scripture teaches is that where two or three gather in his name, he promises to be in the midst also. The the sad testimony of the fact is, We don't act like that. And it's not that we put on an act. The reality is we do church, but don't really take into consideration what being the church means. If we truly are the church, and I don't mean North Main Street Church of God, if we as believers in Christ truly are the edifice of that body of Christ, then the world should know it. Not from our lips only, but by the lives we live. Our lives are living sacrifices, as Paul says, or should be. Our bodies are offered as living sacrifices unto God. We come today to a new series entitled Return to Peace. We're going to be looking at the section of Scripture in the Old Testament. Do you hear me whistle? As I get older, as I'm getting older, my, my whistle like my grandparents used to. And I don't have dentures. Oh, and I didn't welcome you online. Those of you that are watching online today, God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we welcome you uh, to the service. So, but there's a section of Scripture in the Old Testament where the Israelites or the Jewish people have been exiled. The northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom taken over by the Assyrian Empire, southern kingdom taken over eventually about a century or more later by the Babylonian Empire. Now the Israelites or the Jewish people are a people who are displaced in exile throughout these pagan nations. They don't have a land anymore. They are not a nation under God. What happened to them was a result of constant turning away from God. His his teachings, his desires, his commands for their lives, for them as a nation. He always promised, listen, I'll be your protector. 
I'll fight your battles for you. He did precede them in battles many times when he was leading them there. But as they grew further and further away from God and distant from his, from his word, from him specifically, neglecting the warnings of the prophets of their day, there was a point in time where God said, enough. I've contended with you and for you for so long, and, and yet you still deny me. You still disobey me. You still reject me. And so as a last resort, I'm going to have to do this because that's the only way to get your attention. And so as we come into this series and a return to peace, we're going to be looking at the hope of the exiles longing for home again. See, when they initially went into exile, when they were initially taken over by the pagan kings and kingdoms that surrounded them, they continued to worship the gods of those nations. They continued to deny God, but they were in exile for about 70 years. So that 70 years was a long time. What is the life expectancy of an American citizen today? It's pushing up there. We're getting older, you know, we're, getting, we're living longer, but about a lifetime, let's be honest, 70 years is about a whole lifetime for most of us. So 70 years are in exile, generation after generation. And so they had a long time to sit and think and ponder. And so for the first decade or so, they continued to worship the gods around them. They continue to offer sacrifices to these so-called false gods that don't even exist. But God was patient even in exile. But slowly a heart change began to happen. And they began to hunger and thirst for righteousness again that could only be found in Yahweh, the one and only God. And while in exile, we catch readings from the prophets and from other people like Daniel that are starting to continue, or that are starting and have continued to be faithful to turn their hearts back. Lamentations is where I'm reading from today. It's such an exciting book. As the title references, it's all about lamenting. And what is a lament? It's an oh, woe is me poem. Lamentations is five chapters long. It's a very short book. You can read it in one setting very easily. It is all about sadness, sorrow, and pain. We thought Ecclesiastes was bad. Those 12 chapters are pretty rough too. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, he says our only hope is God and obeying his commands. That's, that's what he boils it down to. Nothing else in life matters except worshiping God, obeying him. Lamentations airs on that too. It is poem, and if you read it in the actual Hebrew language, it is based on an acrostic. So the first chapter and the second chapter start each verse or each stanza with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in ascending order. So each chapter is like that. 
And then you get to the third chapter, and it's like, hey, I'm going to ramp this up. And so each stanza, there are three lines in a stanza in chapter three, and they take a letter of the alphabet, but they do three stanzas with the same letter in ascending order all the way through. That's why chapter three is double the length of the first two chapters. But right smack dab in the middle of chapter three isn't so much a lament as much as a word of encouragement. But I don't want to take this word of encouragement out of its context, because oftentimes pastors will only focus on these to the exclusion of the others. And Lamentations is nothing but a lament about how bad life has become for them. And they really cast aspersions toward God for that, the writer does. Many authors believe, or, or scholars believe, that it's Jeremiah who writes this, and it seems to be because it's in the style of Jeremiah's own writings, but we don't have definitive evidence for that. But I like to think it's Jeremiah. So let's read chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because there's 60-some verses there. We'll read the first 30-some verses. So let's read along. Lamentations chapter 3, starting with verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, which may read differently than what you have. I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. So the author is now turned and he's speaking in first person. He's spoken not in first person up to this point. And he's now taking ownership of the writing. He's speaking on behalf of God. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. Can God lead us into darkness? That sounds antithetical. That sounds unbiblical. Well, let's read on and let's get context here. Keep in mind, we are reading poetry. And in Hebrew, there are rhyming words in Hebrew that don't associate or translate over into rhyming words in English. So if we were reading this with all the poetic prose, it would take on deeper meaning. Just keep that in context. Verse 3, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's made my skin and flesh grow old. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He's buried, buried me in a dark place like those uh, long dead. He's walled me in and I can't escape. He's bound me in heavy chains and, and, and though I cry, out, cry and shout, he shut out my prayers. Do you ever feel this way? He's blocked my way. With a high stone wall, he has made my road crooked. He's hidden like a bear or a lion, waiting to attack me. He's dragged me off the path and torn me into pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He's drawn his bow and he's made me a target for its arrows. He shot its arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long they sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and, and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He's made me chew on gravel. He's rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away. And I've forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. 
I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. And yet, still I dare to hope when I remember this. And these three verses stand out like a light amidst dark times. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, keep in mind, what did he just say? The Lord has caused me to eat gravel. He's turned his back on me. He's like a bear or a lion laying in wait. He drags me off the path and tears me to pieces. But who is he hoping in? The Lord. Is he messed up in the head? So the Lord has caused this. He's saying that outright. But he dares to hope in the one who's caused this tremendous sorrow. What's going on here? Let's continue. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Let me say that again. The Lord is good to those who depend on him. What had they not done for centuries? Hear me out. They had not depended on him. And though it is July the 4th, what has our nation decided not to do for a while? Again, this is not a patriotic sermon. It's a historical sermon. We're looking at history of times past and hopefully with the, with the reality or with the hope of not repeating history. The Lord is good to those who depend on him and those who search for him. So it is good to what? Wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. We don't like to wait for anything. I don't like to wait for a microwave burrito for 30 seconds. And I've eaten way too many of those. Am I right? They're addictingly... That was a guy. And it was back around this area. I'll find you. I'll find you. Yeah. Okay, fine. Because they're so mean. It is good, listen to what he goes on to say, verse 27. It is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let me say that again. It is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. See, Solomon said the same thing in Ecclesiastes. Did he not? Yes, he did. The very last chapter. He's like, while you're young, submit to God. We have this philosophy in our culture, and probably many other cultures across the globe do. I just am very familiar with the American culture, that go and live your life. You've got all your life. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Just go and eat it up. And we have this philosophy or mindset. We go and sow our wild oats, and then later on come to the Lord. But that is not biblical, you don't sow anything anywhere the Lord tells you not to. And you only sow where he tells you to in whatever way you want to interpret that. 
submit to the yoke of the Lord at an early age? Why are we losing a generation after a generation after a generation to universities and other lines of work where the philosophies of the world take root rather than the gospel of Christ? It's because the church has not done a good job at rooting the gospel of Christ in the next generation. We think we've got to soften the message, make it palatable, because then the youth will latch on to it. If you keep giving milk, meat will not be palatable. You've got to be able to get the molars strong enough to chew and grind on the meat of the word like this. So when you come to problematic passages that the world looks at and says, see, it's full of contradictions. Your God is evil. He causes bad harm to you. Is that what it's saying? Heck no, it's not saying that. But it kind of is. And we're going to get into it in just a moment. And you're going to see how it kind of is when God leads you into that sorrow. It is for a good purpose. And if you don't know how to interpret the word of God because you don't know the word of God, the next generation's not going to know it because you're not willing to share it. So listen, church. Christians in our culture are a dying breed. And it's not about lifting up a religion. It's about lifting up a relationship rooted in Christ. And that relationship will maintain a shallow root if not challenged and cultivated to go deeper. You see, the author of Lamentations, again, Jeremiah says, Lord, I trust you. Man, you've allowed all of this stuff to happen and I know nothing is outside of your authority. Everything that happens, you see, you know about, and I know you're in ultimate control. And so all of this bad stuff that's happened, I know it's happened for a purpose and a reason, and I lean into you even when I don't understand it. I dare to hope in you because I still believe you're good when bad things are happening. And this is what he goes into. Listen to the next verses. Those who submit at an early age, let them, uh, verse 27 again, let's look at that. And it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. Do you catch the cries of the author? Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He was a student of the word. Wait, he was the word made flesh who dwelt among us. For no one, I love this, no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. He does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Well, what's the point today? The point is this. God's people are not abandoned forever. The author of Lamentations gives us this glimmer of hope in these last few verses. You can continue. I challenge you, continue to read the rest of that chapter because he goes back into how the Lord has really shaken up his world. 
But right in the middle of this, he remembers the hope that we all should have in times of sorrow, difficulty, and trouble. As he's foreshadowing a day, as the Lord hasn't forgotten him or his people, that he will return back or bring them back to a place of peace. First point is, God's turning away is temporary. Think of that for a moment. God's turning away is temporary, for no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. The word abandoned in this verse can also be translated to mean to reject, to expel, or to exclude. Let me say that again, to reject, expel, or exclude. This word is closely related to Jesus' words on the cross in Aramaic when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabanakthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, when the author of Lamentations, if you look at the equivalence of the words in the different languages, this is exactly that same thing. Why does Jesus cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, when God's judgment was poured out on Jesus, what does he do? And don't think he turned his back with glee or joy in his heart. When God pours out judgment, it is a last resort. It is never the first order. In order for Jesus to conquer sin and death, God's judgment had to be poured out on him. In order for you and I to have the free gift of salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ, God had to turn his back on him. Otherwise, we would continue a cycle of the Old Testament judgments on and off, on and off. Quite frankly, we continue that anyway. There is a final judgment. And do you know why God holds back the final judgment at this point? Anybody? It's because of his mercy and his grace. We read the letters of Peter in the New Testament. Don't think that he's forgotten. Don't think that he's with... Here's the deal. God is holding back that judgment because there are still people coming to salvation in Christ. You heard me speak on this not too long ago. When you get really upset, this is on the sermon on Jonah chapter 4. When God with, withholds his judgment, he is waiting for people to turn to him. But be careful. When that judgment comes, as it did for the Israelites, there was no turning back. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, one of the largest books of prophecy outside of Isaiah's, He writes knowing the imminent destruction of the nation of Judah. He, he knows that that's coming. God's not changing his mind. It's done. This is why Jeremiah is often known as a weeping prophet because he's the one that has to be the bearer of bad tidings. He's bringing the bad news to the people. And he's saying, just batten down the hatches. It's happening. God's not turning back. It's a, it's, a, it's a very fearful place to come to. The road is outside. The road is outside so many times to where you've gone over the cliff and judgment is imminent. You can't back up in air. And so we find this 
this judgment. But this judgment is temporary. See, the turning away from God, the turning away of God from Jesus, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the same thing the Jewish people experienced when God poured out his wrath and judgment upon them. So now consider Jesus' words in utter rejection and forsakenness on the cross as God poured out his wrath and judgment upon Jesus for the sin of the world. There's no greater feeling of loss. There's no greater feeling of hopelessness. It feels like God has brutalized you. So when God turns his back, withholds his protection, draws back his security, there is a vacuum that only evil will fill. Do you hear me? When God is present, evil is held back. But when God withdraws, there's a vacuum. That can be in your own life too. This isn't just for nations and groups. It's for individuals. Where God is not present, it provides a vacuum. A vacuum for what? There's only good or evil. It provides a vacuum for evil. Well, what is evil, Brandon? Evil is anything that is contrary to God, point blank. Well, what is God and what does he? Again, I, I, I belabor this point all the time. You have to be a student of the word. You have to eat it up. Even the passages you don't understand, you lean into instead of away from. Pastors do this a lot, is they lean away from the verses that are hard instead of leaning into them and hoping to unpack them for the people. These passages are hard. They're not easy to preach. The passages on divorce are hard. They're not easy to preach. The passages on, passages on sexuality are hard. They're not easy to preach. And any pastor you find getting up and preaching against sin with a gleeful heart instead of a broken heart is not a pastor you want to follow. Sin separates from God. The author of Lamentations is seeing the full ramification of this. And he's broken. He's sorrowful. He's in such duress and yet even in the midst of the darkest moments he dares to hope in the God who led him to this place who allowed him to go through the suffering who allowed him to go through the valley of the shadow of death because he knows without a shadow of doubt that God will not abandon forever so how do you know if God has turned away from you? Because I hear a lot of people ask me that. Well, how do I know if God has left me? There's no clear-cut and dried answer, but there are some things that seem to stand the test of time with regard to that. So let me ask you this. A clear indicator that could be, could be that you have continued to do things your own way for so long that God has left you to your own devices. Whereas before, when you were doing something you know you shouldn't do, there was a tinge of conscience and, a, and like, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing that. The more you continue that path, that voice or that tinge of conscience becomes less and less and less. Has that still small voice of God grown quieter and quieter in your life? 
Is there active, ongoing sin in your life that is separating you from God and is calling on your life? It's in the abandonment that an awakening can occur that turns hearts toward God. But why would you want to go to complete abandonment away from God in your own sin? I don't understand that. I meet with people on a regular basis that tell me the hurts, the habits, and the hang-ups that they have. And they tell me they just can't break out of it. And I'm like, you have to. Because if you don't, it will kill you. Oh, maybe not physically, but definitely spiritually. But I can't. You don't realize how strong. Oh, I, I, listen, we all have our vices. We all have our temptations. But we all have a choice. Nobody forces you to make the choice to choose those things against what God has commanded and taught. So if you continue to make the choices you know are separating you from God, eventually God's voice will become number and number and quieter and quieter until at one point he says, like he did with Israel, if that's really what you want, I'll turn you over to a reprobate mind. That's what our King James versions and some older versions say in the New Testament. If that's the life you really want, I don't want that for you, and I'm contending with you and for you, and honestly, my door is always open, but if that's what you want, I'll leave you to that. It's a scary place to be, ladies and gentlemen. Second thing is, though God brings sorrow, his compassion and love are never failing. And now the word for grief in this passage can also be translated trouble, afflicted, or torment. Trouble, afflicted, or torment. So what was that verse again? Though he brings grief, he shows compassion because of his greatness, because of the greatness of his unfailing love. <clears throat> the purpose of God's causing grief or affliction on us is for repentance, it's the same reason parents spank, their, spank, ground, or discipline their children. When, when I've had to discipline one, either of my four kids for any number of things, it's always been for direct disobedience. When, my kid, when I tell my kid to do something and they say, no, that's called direct disobedience. When I say, don't run into the road, and they do it anyway, that's direct disobedience. We don't spank or discipline for childish behavior, like spilling a cup of milk on the floor, right? So when that direct disobedience has occurred, I don't go, yes, I get to spank, woo! Right, I don't. And if you do, you got problems. See, this is when kids are taken out of the home. But I digress. Most parents who are good parents, not perfect parents, but are good parents, will discipline their children because they love them, right? God disciplines those he loves. But when God disciplines, it's not with a sense of glee and joy and excitement that he gets to <laughs> punish them. But somehow we get this idea in our minds and it's all twisted because we view God's word with a secular lens or with a worldly lens. We don't view it 
as much as we can through the Spirit of God, who should be our lens to see all things. When God punishes, much like a parent who has to punish their children from time to time, it is not only for their good, but it hurts the punisher just as much. Because there's not joy in that. God's judgment, honestly, let me back up a minute. So in judgment, what does God's voice sound like? See, God has a still small voice. And I say God uses that small, quiet voice more often than not. I'm going to say 99.9% of the time in our lives, God will not speak above the noise in your life. He always speaks just shy of that because he wants you to intentionally tune your ear to him. But when God pours out his judgment, he's yelling. Let there be no mistake. When judgment is poured out, God is yelling, do you hear me now? Better than any Verizon commercial. And when that siren is happening, the only thing that can be done, the, when, that, when God is yelling, the only, way, the only thing that can be done is to get out of the house because it's on fire. Do you hear me? It's on fire, Jeremiah. The house is on fire. Everybody get out. It's burning to the ground. The fire department is an hour away. Get out of the house. It's burning down. No, we're going to stick in our house. We love our house. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed the drapes? Have you noticed all the knickknacks I've bought through the years? Oh, sure. I worship those knickknacks. Well, they're going down with the ship. They're getting, they're getting ready to be burned. Get out. C.S. Lewis has this quote, and I was thinking about it this morning, and I asked somebody for a pen because I wanted to write it down. One of my favorite books of C.S. Lewis is not mere Christianity. It's actually called The Problem of Pain. It's not an easy read, but it's worth the read if you're willing to read it. The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. In there, he, he says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain God uses to wake us up. And it's, again, not something he joyfully does, but dares to do to get our attention. God's true nature is love unfailing love. Though he does bring sorrow and grief, he has to, to wake us up at times. And at his very core is compassion and unfailing love. Lastly, God's, God's will, it's not God's will to afflict people, but he does it for our good. Again, it ties into these other two. The word translated as hurt, for he does not enjoy hurting people in the New Living Translation. Or causing them sorrow. The word translated as hurt means to be silent, to oppress, to humble, or to afflict. So sometimes God won't answer, he stays quiet. My kids ask a lot of questions, especially my youngest one. 
And my older kids hear my younger daughter asking a lot of questions, and one of their comments is, why do you ask so many questions? Especially in the middle of a movie. (laughs) But I love her. But I've noticed with my daughter and my other kids, sometimes the best answer is silence. Sometimes when you've answered a question clearly the first time, but they keep asking that same question over and over, well, first off, it's called insanity. (laughs) But honestly, when you've given the answer once, and you've given it a second time because maybe they didn't hear it the first time, the third time is nonsense. Isn't it? How many times did God give an answer in the Old Testament? See, this is why God is patient and long-suffering. Because he's always giving answers. He's always giving them room to come to him. But after a certain point in time, here's what happens. God says, yeah, I have given you that answer a million times. I've given you a million opportunities. And it's not, it's not that I would never give you another opportunity, but honestly, I'm done at this point. I'm done. And so I'm going to be silent. I'm not going to answer your questions anymore for a while. I'm done answering your questions. I'm done giving you a long enough leash. You've now hung yourself on that leash. You made your bed, lie in it. Have you ever heard of that terminology? We don't like to hear that God does that kind of stuff. And if we view God the way the world does then he is a bad God. But if you view God as love, which is what John tells us in 1 John, he is love, then everything he does is an outpouring of his love, even when it hurts. We just don't, we don't like that. We just don't like that. Again, we have so many churches and so many pastors and so many leaders across this nation that want to soften God up and make him palatable to the masses. And the reality is we're feeding them poison. It's a dangerous place to be. Pastors are going to be held in account for how they treated not only the word of God, but how they treated God and showed him to the masses. I don't like to talk about the sorrow and pain that God brings. But when he brings it, it's for good. God is not always roses and lollipops. He's judgment and wrath. Pastor, professor, and theologian Christopher Wright writes, there's an important theological truth here. We should not equate God's love and God's anger as if it were both eternally equivalent attributes of his deity. Let me say that again. God's love and God's anger are not equal. Do you hear me? God's anger was never a part of the equation before the fall. God's nature is love. It's always been, it always will be. As a result of the fall, in order to deal with sin, what angers God more than anything else? Sin and death. Anything that separates us from him angers him. 
And a loving God should be angered by anything that separates us from him or he's not a loving God, is he? And so how do you deal with that anger? See, God has a righteous anger that is always perfect and always doled out in the right times at the right places with the right amount of love undergirding it. God's anger against evil is a terrible reality. It is the negative outworking of God's goodness in rejecting and repelling all that is contrary to his nature and his will, but it is not eternally definitive of his character. God is love. God is not anger. On the contrary, God is slow to anger, but abounding in love. I went back through and I did research on that. How many verses actually say that? And the, just the handful that I found is Exodus 34, verse 6, Numbers 14, verse 18, Nehemiah 9, verse 17, Psalm 86, verse 15, Psalm 103, verse 8, Psalm 145, verse 8, Joel 2, 13, and Jonah 4, 2. God is slow to anger, but abounding in love. If it's mentioned that many times, just in the Old Testament alone, what do you think? It's true. God is abounding in love, but slow to anger. Slow to anger, but abounding in love. The imbalance is a thousand to one. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, what does it say? It talks about how he pours out judgment upon the third and the fourth generation, but he abounds in blessings to the thousandth? You know why the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, writes that? He wanted people to understand who were getting ready to go into the promised land that God had prepared for them, that listen, God is a God of judgment, but I want you to know his blessings and his salvation far outweigh his judgment. That's what he's talking about. Theologian Robin Perry concludes, and I conclude with this. <clears throat> God gets no pleasure from inflicting pain on people. His judgments are not a way he wants to relate to humanity, but are his response to human sin. Punishment <clears throat> is an alien work of God given reluctantly and after numerous warnings. In his innermost self, God is full of loving kindness and mercy, and that is how he wants to relate to humans. That's how he desires to relate to you and I. Consequently, affliction is temporary and is followed by mercy. Here then is an understanding of who Yahweh is in an understanding grounded in his self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, 6-7. And his acts of mercy shown over and over again through the history of Israel. See, this theology forms the basis for hope in the midst of crisis. When the, when the writer of Lamentation says, Lord, you've, you've, you've left me out. You've made me eat gravel. You've, you've hurt me really bad. It's unbearable, God. But I believe in you. And God, I trust you. Even when it doesn't make sense, I know you haven't abandoned me forever. Oh, and yes, I know I deserve this. But you're good. Your holiness, your love is never failing. 
The greatness of who you are is defined by love. And so I dare to hope that there is still a future for me. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're dealing with or struggling with. But I know pain is an ever-present reality in this fallen world. And sometimes we deserve it. And other times there's a question mark there. Why, God? Why? We can excuse God, or we can lean into God, or we can reject God. And too many people, when pain comes, walk away. Well, God, I thought my life was going to get better, God, when, you, when I came to Christ. I thought there were going to be no more troubles or sorrows. See, this is the problem with the gospel that's false, that says, if you do this, then you'll get all of this in return. You get eternal life. And that's a blessing beyond measure. But coming to Christ doesn't exempt you from the pains and the hurts of this world. It is the only way to get through the pains and the hurts of this world. As our worship team comes forward to close us out, um, I don't know if you feel like God's abandoned you. Maybe he has. Maybe you're at that point where you've pushed that button way too many times and God says, fine, you can have that. I won't bug you any longer. Doesn't mean he's abandoned you forever, but maybe he's abandoned you to yourself to realize the vanity of who you are by yourself. If you find yourself alone, shaking your fist at heaven, I guess the question I would have is why? Have you really searched the depths of the reasoning behind the pain you're sitting in? It may not be of any choice of yours. You may find yourself in the crosshairs of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And your only hope is still the one who gives abundant life. But maybe the pain in your life is by your own making. And to shake your fist at heaven is the wrong reaction. Doesn't mean you can't be gutturally honest with God because he can take it. But there has to be ownership on your part too. And when you take ownership, when you confess your sins, that's when repentance can happen. And repentance, as you've heard me say oftentimes, is the only way into that throne room of grace. You cannot go into that throne room of grace with sin in your life. You have to confess your sins, repent, and then through Christ, you can enter the throne room of grace with confidence. And repentance is turning from a pattern of behavior that's destructive and turning back to Christ. Our altars are always open. As I was younger, I used to think, oh, it's old and traditional. As I was younger, I used to think they were old and traditional and they were collecting dust. As I've grown older, I've come to realize the value in spaces like this. And I'm not old by any stretch of the imagination, but as I've grown in a relationship with Christ, there's something about coming to a place and a space to let your burdens go. 
to lay everything on these altars. The way the Old Testament, they used to bring animal sacrifices to God on the altars and the priest would offer the sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. In this, it's a symbolic act of walking forward, setting your burdens there and saying, Jesus, (laughs) I'm tired of carrying this albatross around. I'm tired of carrying this pain. I'm tired of carrying this sin. I'm tired of carrying this baggage, this unforgiveness, this abuse that happened to me. When I'm tired of carrying it. I can't carry it anymore, God. You, You take it for me. I know the pain I'm going through right now is temporary, but it's only temporary if I continue to press into you and seek you because I know you're good. Let's pray. Father, in this place, my concern, my desire is that you would be glorified. These difficult passages where we have to grapple and wrestle with the truth that sometimes you turn your back on us, it's not easy to hear. It's not easy to chew on. But we know that in times of judgment, when you do turn your back to discipline or punish those you love, remind us that it is because of your love that you do that. Maybe it's to get our attention, to wake us up to the reality of the destruction in our own life or the path of destruction we're either leaving or heading toward. In this place, break the bondage of sin and death in the lives of those here so that people can walk out refreshed, renewed, and in step with you, I pray. Whatever deep, dark valley people in this place or watching online or or walking through right now, God, I pray that you would relieve them of those burdens. But I know that can only happen when they come to a place of surrender. So God, bring this conviction upon us for surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.